Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. Today, I'm speaking with Liz Ricketts. Liz is an educator, designer, and the co-founder of the Or Foundation, which is a USA and Ghana-based nonprofit working at the intersection of environmental justice, education, and fashion development. If you're a long-term listener of this podcast, you might remember I spoke to the All Foundation's programs manager, Chloe Assam, on the podcast previously. And if you follow me on Instagram, you will see a couple of videos pinned to my page that I made in collaboration with the All Foundation that I would love for you to watch. And I think they will only help your understanding of this conversation today. Working within the industry as a designer and stylist, Liz witnessed the toxicity of fashion's disposable culture firsthand and has since been dedicated to transforming the industry. She holds a master's in education from Harvard University and her upcycled garments have appeared in international magazines, film and TV. Her work as a researcher and advocate for justice-led circular economy has been published widely. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the All Foundations agreement with Shein. And yes, you did hear me right, Shein as in the ultra-fast fashion brand Shein, who in 2022 donated $50 million to tackle the clothing waste crisis, 15 million of which went directly to the All Foundation. If that sounds intriguing, do stick with this episode. It is a complex and nuanced issue and we really go into it in today's conversation. One of my 2022 highlights was getting to spend time with Liz in real life and getting to know her and becoming her friend. She is someone I really look up to and it's my pleasure to be bringing you this conversation today, especially as Liz doesn't love doing podcasts. So I'm especially grateful to have spent this time with her. So without any further ado, here is Liz Ricketts on All The Small Things. Liz, welcome to All the Small Things. I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. Let us begin as we always do. I would love to hear if you have a morning ritual that you like to practice as a way to help you feel grounded as you start your days. Thank you, Venetia. It's so wonderful to be here with you and just nice to chat with you always. In terms of morning rituals, the only one I really have is running. So I run pretty much every morning, no matter how far I can go or how long I have. It just, it helps me to clear my mind. And then other than that, just making sure I wake up, you know, at least two hours before I have to be in any meetings or be at work so that I can center myself and know what the day looks like. I think we should dive straight into talking about the All Foundation and Cantamanto Market. 
Despite efforts of the Cantamanto market community, between four and five million items of clothing end up as waste in Accra every single week. So I wanted to start by asking, what are the main ways that clothing waste is making its way from countries like the UK and US in the global north and ending up in Cantamanto markets? It's helpful to first talk about What are the sort of five entry points that clothing would make its way from the global north to Ghana? So basically, those are charity shops. You know, when you take clothing, you donate it to a Goodwill or to an Oxfam, whatever they can't sell there ends up entering the global secondhand supply chain. But then also, quote unquote, recycling bins. So if you live in a city or even in a rural environment, often in parking lots, you know, at malls, there's like these bins that say clothing recycling, and those actually just enter the secondhand clothing trade as well. And then also retailer take back programs. So H&M, for instance, has a partnership with a company called ICO. And for their take back program or their quote unquote recycling program, again, most of what consumers or customers might return in the store will enter the global secondhand clothing trade. And then also any sort of like door-to-door recycling program, um, like simple recycling is one in the United States where you can put your clothes in a yellow or orange bag and put it at the curb and then it gets picked up. All of that also goes into the secondhand clothing trade. And then also whatever resale platforms can't sell. So resale platforms like ThreadUp in the US, whatever they can't profit from, on their platform will also enter the global secondhand clothing trade. So basically those are like the five entry points that are consumer facing, but then they all enter this massive supply chain that has been oversimplified for people for a very long time. You know, people have been told that it's charity, they've been told that it's landfill diversion or recycling, and now we're talking about it as circularity, but it's a supply chain like anything else. So over half of the planet's dresses itself primarily in secondhand clothing. And so there are a lot of different actors within that supply chain that are invisible to most people in the global north that end up collecting all the clothes, aggregating them, sorting them, and then exporting them to places like Ghana. When it gets here, retailers will buy bales. It's 55 kg at a minimum. Um, and retailers buy them and they have no idea what's inside of them because they're wrapped in you know, opaque plastic and compressed. By the time a retailer has opened a bale of secondhand clothes from the global north, she's about two USD in debt per garment, which is really important um, because I think that's very different from what most people in the global north think is happening. But this is waste management. And again, it's a supply chain. It costs money. These bales can cost anywhere from $128 to $1,000 at this point. And retailers consider it very much a gambling job because, again, you're buying things sight unseen and you become responsible for them and you have no way to return or get your money back. So... As you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of efforts with the community here to recirculate things. And Contamanto is the largest reuse and upcycling economy in the world. So the retailers and tailors who work here basically recirculate a minimum of 25 million garments every month. So that's through resale, that's through repair, and that's through upcycling. But the thing is, is that because fast fashion has lowered the quality of clothing overall, there's this 
debt cycle that people get trapped in that then creates a waste crisis. So when a retailer, again, opens a bale on Wednesday or Saturday, 40% of the bale, no one will come to buy. And no one will come to buy it on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So then it's been an entire week and she has this pile of clothes and that no one has come to buy. But every single day she spent money. So she spent money on electricity. She spent money on sanitation. She's paid rent. She's spent money to transport the clothing that she can't sell. So at some point she's taking too much of an economic hit on this pile of clothes that are also just like taking up space in her stall. So she has to cut her losses and that 40% becomes waste. It gets thrown into the aisleway or swept up and put into bags. And she gambles on another bale. And that's because essentially it's a hand-to-mouth business at this point. There is no profit to be made. You know, when you ask retailers how much they profit in a week, they will say that's not a word that we know or that's not something we talk about. So it's just about cash flow. So people need to buy another bale so that they can just get cash in hand to put food on the table that night. So it's really important that people understand that Contamanto is very much a model of sustainability, but because there is no support and because there's so much low quality clothing that people can't make their money back on, then they don't have any money to reinvest in rehabilitating the lower quality things and they get trapped in this debt cycle and then that's why it becomes waste. And when something becomes waste here, it's very different from when something becomes waste in London or in New York City because here waste hits the environment. This is the away. You know, I think a lot of times people say there is no away and and for us that's actually kind of counterproductive because there is in a way it's very real and it's here. There's no waste management system. There is no sanitary landfill for this clothing to be hidden in. And also Ghana doesn't have the audacity to basically bail up the waste again and ship it to, to someone else to become their problem. So most of this waste ends up entering the environment. So it ends up being pushed out to the gutter system and then the rains will come and push it out to sea or it ends up being burnt in open piles around Contamanto or taken to informal dump sites where people live. This is where, you know, waste is felt. So Contamanto makes visible fashion's waste crisis, even though Contamanto is not the cause of that waste crisis. And for us, the people who feel most violently the impact of this waste are a group of girls and women known as kaie, which is a term that means she who carries the burden. These are young women who migrate from northern Ghana for many reasons, but some of the drivers are increased desertification and a lack of opportunities there. And they end up coming south to Accra and carrying things on their heads in the marketplaces. And in Contamanto, again, the clothing is transported in bales that weigh a minimum of 55 kg. So these women are carrying these bales on their heads throughout the marketplace, at least 10 loads a day to be able to survive. And it's backbreaking work. Um, it's sometimes fatal work. 
sometimes women die because their necks break under the weights of these bales and they live in debt slavery. I mean, they are paid very little between 30 cents and a dollar per trip. Not enough to save money, certainly, but also not even enough to afford enough water or food for the day. And what's really most violent about the situation is that most of them live near one of the main dump sites where the clothing waste ends up. So they labor all day, and then almost half of what they carry ends up being dumped in their backyard, um, where it ends up being burnt, you know, causing air pollution, leading to other health issues for them. Um, a lot of their children, you know, have asthma. And then also just the waste causes a lot of other health emergencies because it leads to increased flooding and cholera and malaria risk goes up. So I think what people need to realize is that the secondhand clothing trade is not charity. It's not recycling. It is a supply chain. And the community that's here that's doing the actual work of circularity in terms of impact even though they're doing that work, they exist in a cycle of debt and precarity that is simply unfair because the global north treats them as if they are invisible um, and doesn't acknowledge what the supply chain actually is. Thank you for explaining that so, so well. I have a pinned video on my Instagram page that I'll leave in the episode notes that we worked on together called carrying capacity where you can learn more about the kiaa the women carrying these bales of clothing and i think what you have talked about it's really really important for us to realize and to question when brands charity shops recycling systems tell us that our clothing is 100% circular, nothing gets sent to landfill. We are currently simply producing too many clothes between 100 and 150 billion items of clothing every single year. We don't have the infrastructure to be able to recycle all of these clothes. We're simply producing too much. So let's talk about extended producer responsibility. What do we mean by this term? Yes, great question. So extended producer responsibility is essentially a tax on brands, on producers, where the money is supposed to go towards waste management of the products that they create, and then now towards the development of a circular economy. So extended producer responsibility can exist for many different sectors and does already. But when it comes to fashion and textiles, there's only one country that currently has a policy or a framework in place, and that's France. And France has had their policy since 2007. In France, brands are charged a penny to six pennies per garment, and that fee is calculated basically on durability standards and then whether or not the brand includes recycled content in its products. And that money is supposed to go towards the waste management of the products that they produce. The issue is that in France, the majority of the clothing that is collected through the extended producer responsibility policy is exported, mostly to the continent of Africa. Ghana is the 12th largest receiver of clothing from France. And yet all of the money that is collected stays in France or in Europe. 
And so it's essentially a waste colonialism policy where the waste management is being exported or the responsibility for it is being exported, but funding is only going to people in France or in Europe who are doing the sorting and not ultimately to the communities that are managing this waste. This is something that we've been fighting from a formal capacity writing policy papers, putting in lots of unpaid consulting hours, making our views known that if these policies are supposed to fund waste management, then some of the money should come to the communities that actually end up doing that work. And we have had no success (laughs) through those formal channels. Basically, we've been told that money can't cross borders, which is a very ridiculous response. Money crosses borders every day. (laughs) And then we've also been told that basically we have to wait. So maybe in five years, these policies will be globally accountable and some of the money could flow to places like Ghana. But the global north needs to figure it out first, which I think is very backwards. So am I right in thinking that you said if an item of clothing has recycled material in it, the brand pays less tax? Correct. Yeah, the fee is eco-modulated. And also the other thing is that there's a loophole that I don't understand in detail. But essentially, if a brand already manages the end of life of its product, then it doesn't have to pay any fee. And it's very unclear to us what that means, because essentially no brand is handling the end of life of its products perfectly. And we're very concerned that, again, a brand like H&M with a take back program could basically be exempt from this policy because they have that take back program. So they're being financially rewarded if they have certain amounts of recycled material or whatever it is, but all of these things make absolutely no difference to when the product will eventually arrive somewhere similar to or actually in Cantamanto market. Exactly. Wow, that is absolutely shocking. Yes, it is. And the fee is also just nowhere near what it needs to be, right? I mean, one of the things we're looking at is sales tax. Everyone pays sales tax or VAT. And when you buy an item, that money is supposed to go essentially towards infrastructure. So when you go to a store, you buy something for a retailer to exist. You have roads, you have electricity, you have internet, you have all of these things that the government provides, right? So that money goes towards those things. And that, you know, it's 8%, 12%, 15%, sometimes higher, depending on the country, And yet, when we're talking about building infrastructure for waste management, something that doesn't exist anywhere, we're talking about doing that with a penny, a garment, (laughs) which is not going to work, right? Like, those economics don't make sense. A lot of the reason that clothing ends up here is because there is no way for the sorters, for the resellers, for the charity shops in the global north to manage it properly because they don't have the financing and the logistics support to pay people well, to pay people a living wage in the global north to sort things into the right categories. We do have the money, we're just choosing not to spend it in that way. And one of the biggest failures that we're facing in the global north at the moment in the UK is that no one, no policymaker, no politician who is in power is thinking long term. Mm. So that is truly, truly shocking. Up until this year, 
knowing what we know about so much of this onus being on the big fashion brands who are overproducing and know that they are overproducing yet refusing to take accountability for this have any fashion brands offered to financially support the ore to help put money into creating recycling infrastructure in Cantamanto? and have you been having these conversations with brands I'm assuming you have for a few years So no big brands have supported us until recently, but we have, you know, always had the support of a lot of small independent brands that aren't really responsible for overproducing. So brands like Clean Estrada or Thousandfell or Vestier Collective have all been really good partners. And that's really beautiful, you know, to have solidarity from independent brands. But ultimately, it's not going to be solved until the companies who are causing the most waste are are held responsible and, and take some responsibility. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let's talk about the financial donation that you received in 2022 at the Global Fashion Summit in Copenhagen. You announced that the ore would be entering into an agreement with Shein and receiving $15 million from them in order to tackle the enormous clothing waste problem in Cantamanto. This sent a few people in the sustainable fashion space here in the global north into meltdown. Why do you think this was a misdirection of outrage? And how do you feel about the outrage from certain folks now that some time has passed? You know, first of all, I think there were a lot of assumptions made about how the agreement came about um, with Shein. And it's important for people to know that this is something we asked them to create. So we asked Shein to create an EPR fund of $10 million a year for five years. We received $5 million for the first three years. So the fund not only benefits us and the communities that we work with, but it also will benefit other communities and organizations dealing with secondhand clothing waste and textile waste. So that's really important to acknowledge that I think even within the reaction, there were a lot of assumptions about what the power dynamics are, that it must have been Shein that created this thing to greenwash and then came to us to be their poster child for it. And it must have been Shein that forced Liz Ricketts to get up there and like make this announcement. <laughs> but it was my decision to make the announcements. Again, we asked them to create this fund. And that's because we have had no success through formal channels, creating policies that would 
redistribute wealth to communities like Contamanto. So if we aren't having success in that way, I can't just tell the people that we work with to wait. Ultimately, you don't have time to wait for the perfect system. No, we don't have the time to do that. And also, brands should make voluntary contributions to these types of funds. And that's the way it's framed with Shein, right? They're essentially paying a bill that's overdue. They're compensating people for work done. And for us, that's a very dignified way to fund change here. It's different from aid where, you know, the people giving the grants decide how the money can be used. This agreement with Shein is set up in a way where they really do view it as compensating people for the work they've already done. And so we have those resources and are a steward of those resources to to bring tangible change to the community. In terms of the reaction, I mean, obviously, I, I wasn't surprised by the gasp or by the fact that people were shocked. But I think that when I made the announcement, there are a couple of things um, that I've reflected on a lot. One, who decides what justice looks like, right? Again, it's not about me. It's not even about our organization. It's about the fact that the people we work with you know, retailers and tailors, to be specific, some of them we've known since 2016, have trusted us for years, stood in front of countless cameras, telling their stories, trying to raise awareness, trusted that we are working towards tangible change for them. And honestly, we haven't delivered it until now. It is not possible without resources to (laughs) deliver tangible change. And they've been asking us throughout that entire time, when will people acknowledge them? When will people acknowledge the work that they're doing? And when will brands who are creating all of these clothes step up? So for us, it's it's that, right? Like I made this announcement fully confident that I had the support of my team and the support of the specific community members that we work with. So I had a lot of peace <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, why I was there and why I was making the announcement and the agreement. Something that was a little bit challenging for me personally in the moment was that I I made the announcement within a panel conversation. In the middle of the panel, I was talking about the work that we do and about the CAE and the the people we work with. And there were several people in the audience, you know, sort of crying or, you know, looking at me very much with pity, which I'm very tired of, like our community being just pitied. And so there was this, you know, this energy of like, we, we want to help her, like we want to help her community, this is horrible. And then five minutes later, I make an announcement that we are receiving help. And the reaction is, how dare you? You took money from the wrong people. That's something we really need to reflect on as a community. Again, who decides? But also, are we really interested in changing things? Or do people actually enjoy consuming pollution porn consuming these horrible stories. Like, I don't think it's more ethical for us to post on the internet sad stories to try to raise, you know, $5 a year, $100 a year. I don't want to have to keep going to these conferences or, you know, talking on podcasts, doing these conversations about, like, sad stories. That's not something we should want to continue. And so I think that we need to reflect upon how much are we actually willing to take action to change things versus how much are some of us in the sustainability community maybe comfortable with the status quo because it gives us something to talk about and something also to make money off of. 
something that's also just become really clear. Now it's been four months and still no one has been able to tell me what the pathway is to achieving those sorts of resources. And that's, again, something that I think we could all reflect on. <laughs> you know, what is the right way? Is there a right way? What kind of solidarity would you like to see from the sustainability community here in the global north? I think that there is a lot more solidarity that could come from the sustainability community. You know, if resale platforms getting hundreds of millions of dollars of investment were to redistribute 5% of that to communities like Contamanto, that would make a big difference. If everyone who asked us to be on panels or interviewed for books or whatever donated, that would help. If for every news story, you know, 1% of the audience donated money, that would help. But that's not the world that we live in. And it's not my fault, and it's certainly not our community's fault, that we have constructed a world where it's easier to take a brand to court for intellectual property infringement than it is for human rights abuses. Yeah, I, I'm not going to ask our community to wait, you know, for those like perfect solutions to exist. And I honestly understand like some of the reactions where people maybe felt like, why them? Because I think that there's a scarcity of resources within the sustainability community. We don't deserve it any more than anyone else deserves it. But I hope that what this agreement shows is that this is what we can ask for. The sustainability community exists in a scarcity mindset. Everyone is fighting over a very small slice of a pie. And I think people are very competitive. And we really need to come together to try to broaden the resources that are available. Um, otherwise, we aren't going to make change. Like if we aren't wrestling capital away from a system that we're saying needs to change and creating living wage jobs in an alternative system, then we aren't building anything new. We aren't changing. Absolutely. I think people listening to this might have lots of questions about Shein as a business and a brand. And I think all the things that might have arisen in your mind, if this is perhaps news to you, can still be true. Shein can still be a highly exploitative brand. They can be overproducing. They can be underpaying. All of these things are true. And does this agreement mean we take any heat off them whatsoever? Absolutely not. So um, something that I have really, really loved about this agreement is how transparent you have been on what you're doing with this money. Why is this important to you? And how has this donation changed how the all operates? It's really important to us to ensure that we are you know, publishing information about where the resources are going and what the impact of those resources are. So for us, I mean, it, it changes everything in a pretty big way. I mean, our budget before this was $250,000 a year. So $5 million a year is a massive shift. So that's allowed us to think into the future, to really plan not just one month ahead, but a year, two years ahead on what tangible change actually will look like and to know and feel confident that when we make commitments to our community, when we tell people that we are going to do something, that we actually have the resources to do it. It's not speculative. So that's a, a big shift and a very welcome shift. In terms of how the money has been used and where we've put our priorities, I mean, for us, 
the first priority was our Mbilgu program. So Mbilgu means sisterhood in Dagbani, which is the dominant language for Kaye that we work with. And over the last year, we had a chiropractic research and treatment program where we had 100 girls going through this program every Friday. Five girls would go to the chiropractor. Her name's Dr. Dordor. She's great. And we would you know, sit down with them, get to know them, get to know their family history, their health history, and they would have two x-rays taken. And then the doctor would bring everyone into the room and put their x-rays on the screen and and show them what's happening in their body because of of head carrying these bales. I mean, it was a very sobering experience every time. Basically, what we found is that within two months of head carrying, there's irreversible damage to their spinal column. Some of the women, there's so much calcium that had deposited on their bones that the bones were pushing into their trachea. So it was making it hard for them to breathe or eat and swallow. Very alarming. Um, But until the agreement with Sheehan, we didn't have enough resources to support all of those women in leaving head carrying, which is obviously very difficult to tell people that you're doing this job that could kill you and then to have no immediate solution for them. So we would prioritize emergency cases. Basically, Dr. Dordor would turn to us and say, you know, it's only a matter of time. And that was her way of indicating that this girl or this woman could die next week or the week after if we didn't take her out. So before the agreement with Sheehan, we only had 18 women from the 100 that we had been able to take out of head carrying and put into apprenticeships. And right after the agreement, before we even had the money, we we met with all of them who were still in Accra, over 50 of the women. We made sure that they all had enough money to stop carrying immediately. Some of them went home to their communities. And then we started scaling the apprenticeship programs. And now we have 46 women in apprenticeships. We've also expanded our healthcare offerings. So we have nurses coming multiple times a month and making sure that they're getting individual care and also continue to have access to chiropractic care. We've also added sort of opt-in classes. So things like swimming and self-defense and English language. And then just overall, we've upped our spending. So having these resources allows us the flexibility to not just arbitrarily assign an amount of money that someone needs but to have the resources that we need for each person and to tailor that for each person. So that was the priority in terms of um, just where we acted first and um, where money was spent first. But the biggest goal and really what we asked Sheehan for this money for is upfitting Contamanto, which includes eliminating the need to head carry. So basically widening the aisleways of Contamanto so that there are other ways for the bales to get through the markets, adding solar panels so that there's consistent electricity and so there's not as many fires, doors on stalls, which will help with some of the costs that the retailers have, permeable pavers to help with flooding. Um, Because right now when it rains here, and I have been to Contamanto during the rainy season with, you know, sewer water up to our knees, basically. So that ruins all the clothing that's in the market. Um, So changing that. And then some of the things that the retailers and tailors have asked us for for years is a clinic and a nursery. You know, they spend six days a week at work. 
and most of them are doing this job to support their families. A lot of them are single mothers, and yet they never get to see their kids. And then with the Upfit, we've also expanded our secondhand solidarity fund. So previously, any kind of like panel conversation we did or lecture, we would always take any kind of money from like intellectual labor around Contamanta, we would always put into a fund that would go directly towards crisis relief and debt relief, because we don't think it's right to make money off of, you know, the stories of a community that doesn't have the privilege of speaking for themselves. With this fund with Sheehan, we are able to set the Solidarity Fund at $500,000 a year. $500,000 a year that we're distributing in terms of crisis relief, debt relief, and then also education support for retailers and tailors' children. And we've been having a lot of conversations met with leaders in the markets, retailers, talking to them about how we can transition this fund to be community managed so that we're not making those decisions. And then in terms of the, a lot of people probably don't know this, but we have a lab where we do material transformation work. We buy waste from Contamanto and we make new materials and products out of it. And we've been doing that work internally, and we're now transitioning it to become an incubator where we can support at least 10 uh, local businesses to take some of those ideas forward um, and providing funding for them to do that. These resources are allowing us to launch a fiber-to-fiber pilot, recycling pilots, with two legacy textile manufacturers here in Ghana. And that, for us, is not about recycling. Like We don't believe that recycling will solve everything, but it's about showing that we can have some of that infrastructure here and that it, we should have local ownership and profits um, when it comes to fiber-to-fiber recycling. And then other things, you know, that it allows us to do is just direct representation to ensure that we can support our community in speaking for themselves. And then it also allows us to sort of shift our advocacy focus to put a lot more resources into local advocacy, you know, podcasts, videos, um, which is really important. So when we're talking about change, this is really a lot. My hope is that people listening to this who might have been, you know, initially shocked or gasped at the news of the agreement with Xi'an will hear all of these things that you're listed. And I know that there's more and go, okay, like that's huge. Has this agreement inspired any other brands to come forward to you and and want to work with you in a similar way? No, not really. There's a couple of brands that reached out, but mostly what we heard is, you know, one brand was mad that they weren't first um, to do this. And another brand said that they would never touch us because we made Shein look so bad, which is also funny, of course, because the sustainability community was mad because they thought we made Shein look too good. But then (laughs) the other brands think we made them look too bad. There's always, you know, those different perspectives. I mean, but to be fair, like we aren't super focused on getting other brands to step up right now. The reality is we have a lot of work to do and we want to prove like the impact that can be delivered. Once we have um, the demonstration site of the upfit, um, because the money that we're getting from Shein isn't enough to upfit the entire market. So we are hoping that once we've done a demonstration site, then perhaps we'll approach more brands and they might be open to supporting. And for us, again, like this agreement isn't a substitute for policy. Like we're still working very, very diligently to change EPR policies. 
so that they are globally accountable and so that money can come to communities like Contamanto through those means. What would be your advice to folks listening who care deeply about this issue? What kind of solidarity can we partake in? What kind of action would you like to see in the global north to support a truly just movement? Yeah, I think we really just need to push on brands to redistribute power and wealth (laughs) and to push back against this tendency to only do partnerships that are easy to sort of slap a logo on. We don't need more documentaries. We don't need more capsule collections. We don't need more panel conversations. Like We really just need people to put money in the hands of the people who are closest to the problem and therefore are closest to the solutions so that they can deliver impact in their local context. And that requires trust. And it requires giving up some level of control. I think most brands, when they approach these ideas of like charity or partnerships, it's always something that has to benefit them, of course. (laughs) And that's not how change is going to happen. I think we just really need to encourage brands to trust communities, trust organizations to know what's best to do with their resources instead of asking brands to... I mean, I don't even know if we ask brands to do this, but I do think there's like a lot of hype around, you know, partnerships, obviously, that are very surface level. And that makes me think about some of the reaction to the agreement with Shein. That's kind of evidence of specific brands or big players in the the fashion sphere or the sustainability movement wanting to be the ones who look like the good guys who are doing the best and the right thing in adverted commas. Whereas really like that's not where our emphasis needs to be. Our emphasis needs to be on like trusting people on the ground to know how to redistribute wealth and power. Yeah. I mean, for us, when we, when we talk about circularity, we have this saying that there can be no bottom or top of a circular supply chain, right? Because if you have a circle and the circle is going around, (laughs) then there is no bottom or top. And I think that's, Everyone is talking about circularity strictly from the perspective of material flows and like trying to still maintain their position of power, you know, at the top to control exactly what that looks like and and who benefits from it. And it's not going to work. Brands are never going to get all their product back from consumers. And then also, I don't want that to happen. I don't want H&M to become my waste management company. Like, I don't want these brands to become bigger sort of monopolies. We need more trust and we need more equal distribution so that in a circular economy, people can meet on more equal footing and negotiate from a place of reciprocity and respect. And, And that's not currently what we have. I know there's been so much in this conversation, but if there was one thing you would like my listeners to take away from this conversation what would it be how would you like them to engage with this issue so i mean first of all we do need to buy less often when we tell people to consume less they think that we're telling them to be less of a person but actually for me it's an invitation to have a life you know when we're consuming we're laboring if you're scrolling on your phone and buying things like you are literally laboring, you're making money for advertisers, you are making money for other people because you're giving them your time and then eventually your money. It's not leisure anymore. I think that just thinking less about consumption means that 
you can learn a language, you can read a book, you can save up to go on vacation, you know, you can do other things with your life, like focus on enriching yourself in, in other ways. And to do that, we always recommend, you know, people just take a year off of buying anything new so that they can detox, you know, from that mentality and also step back and notice those structures that have caused you to have that mentality. But then also within that year, choose five items that you do something different with. So maybe it's learning to sew a button back on your shirt. Maybe it's learning to dye things so that you can cover stains. But then also really I encourage you to look for services and people in your community that can help you repair or help you upcycle things. You know, take your clothes to a local tailor because we really need to be paying attention to what infrastructure exists in our own communities for the circular economy? What infrastructure doesn't exist? Does it cost more money for you to repair the crotch on your jeans than it costs you to buy that pair of jeans? Just learning to sew, taking your measurements, like you are not a size small, medium, large. You have measurements specific to your body that are beautiful. Learn them, use them. You know, that's something that's here in Ghana is very apparent. It's just citizens here in Ghana have a very different relationship with getting dressed because everyone grows up taking cloth to a local tailor. Everyone knows their measurements, co-designs garments with the tailors, you know, sketches it out, says exactly what they want. And people here know enough how to sew that they can speak that language. We need to get to that point with both the mentality and with the infrastructure. How would you feel about a quickfire round? Sure, let's do it. Quickfire with Liz. Wake up early or have a lion? Wake up early. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Instagram or TikTok? <laughs> Instagram. Flip-flops or sandals? Sandals. H&M's conscious collection or a drastic reduction in overall output? <laughs> this is too funny. A drastic reduction in overall output. Zara's take-back program or fair living wages for garment makers? <laughs> fair living wages, please. Marks and Spencer's sustainable range or rewear what you already have? Rewear what you already have. TV shows or films? Uh, films. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity. And final question that I ask everyone who comes on the show, what is one thing that you would like your future self to have achieved? Uh, this question is so hard still. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that far into the future. So what I will say is like within three to five years, I hope that we have succeeded in making Corley Lagoon swimmable, which is the water body that runs along one of the main disposal sites. And I hope that within three to five years, I'm able to sort of step back from a decision-making role within the organization. That's as far as I can think into the future. Liz, thank you so much for such an enlightening and invigorating conversation. I'm so grateful for you. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Venetia. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please do check out the show notes where you will find links to the All Foundation and their brilliant work. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do feel free to leave me a five-star review on your preferred podcast player. It really does help get the word of the podcast out there.
I will see you back here, same time, same place next week for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, I'm wishing you the best possible day. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.